This is Joseph Gervaisi. I am here with Cynthia Connolly. We're recording this interview at Cindergarten in West Philadelphia on Baltimore Avenue. Today is March 5, 2016. This is part of Loud Fast Philly. And I should point out that this is one of the infrequent interviews that uh, don't necessarily directly relate to Philadelphia. But I do have the great opportunity to talk to Cynthia. And I know that her work uh, greatly affected many people in the city, in the scene. Uh, so I did not want to pass up the opportunity to talk to her. Cynthia. Hello. Hi. Thank you for coming to Fine Fair Philadelphia. Sure, of course. I love Philadelphia. Uh, for those who don't know, we're going to be doing a presentation tonight. We're, you're going to be doing a presentation tonight of right. your work. Mm -hmm. uh, well, tell me, when were you born and where? I um, was born in Los Angeles, California uh, in 1964, mm -hmm. September 17th, 1964. Very good. Um, so I grew up in Los Angeles and um, moved to D.C. in 1981. My mother got divorced in the 70s and she went to law school uh, mm -hmm. in the early 70s and then late 70s graduated and decided she needed to get a job and realized that she probably wanted to move to D.C. to get a job. So she ended up moving in 81 and then... So you were still a teenager yeah. at that point. So mm -hmm. I was 15 or 16 when I moved to DC. It was just the two of you going there. My sister, my mother and my sister and I, Okay. the three of us. So my mom moved to DC first. Uh, and actually the talk that I'm going to do tonight, I talk about this briefly, but she moved to DC first and she subscribed to the Washington post, mm -hmm. uh, in Los Angeles. So in January of 1981 in the Sunday section, some section in the Sunday paper of the Washington post, there was a whole article about DC punks. So, I was like, well, this is where we need to go. So, because <laughs> so even at that, so in Los Angeles, you were interested in punk. Yeah. So uh -huh. I was going to punk shows in LA. I grew up in West LA, where there was the sort of the teen culture was mostly surfing, mm -hmm. and I kind of wasn't into surfing. It was a bunch of dudes who thought they were really cool, and then the yeah. like girls hung out on the beach and watched the dudes surf. And for some reason, that wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, and so I was sort of always looking for something else, and. Um, in uh, 1979, my best friend Patricia and I, we were hanging out. I slept over at her house or something. We were hanging out having breakfast with her parents, and we were reading the LA Times, and there was mm -hmm. an article. Um, this is also on the slideshow. Um, in the calendar section, where there were these photographs of bands, and, you know, at that time, Led Zeppelin and ACDC and that kind of music was really popular, and it was really sexist and always bugged me. Mm -hmm. So... I was like, wonder what this music is like. And so somehow from that article, then we figured out there was a radio show called uh, Rodney on the Rock, KROQ, on Sunday nights. And we started listening to it. And that led us to find, discover there were all these bands playing in these clubs. And so we would go out. Um, <clears throat> mostly my mom probably didn't know I was doing this because she was uh, looking for jobs. So she didn't know we would get on buses. And because it was even before we were old enough to drive, like mm -hmm. we were 15. Um, get on these bus, take buses like way across LA to go to these punk shows and then take buses back at night. Do you remember um, any of the places that you were seeing the performances at? Um, like the Starwood and the Whiskey mm -hmm. were the like the first ones and then you go to those shows and then people would hand you flyers for other shows that were more obscure places. Um, there was a place that was really interesting called the Brave Dog that was in downtown LA that that you could really only get there by car. So. Eventually, my friend Patricia and I would find friends who were a little older, mm -hmm. and then they would drive us to right. some of these places. Um, you didn't have any issues getting into them being underage? No, no. Does it there help was that you're female this, and getting into them? Right, yeah, it's actually, okay. yeah. it's the 70s, so, yeah, yeah, so whatever. Yeah. I don't, have you read the afterword that I wrote? Uh, I've read it a 
while ago. Yeah. You did? Okay, because I say so that, it's, it's right. Been, yeah. I, it's, I, so so I, mean I never carried, you. that's okay, but I never carried a bag with me, which is sort of interesting thing, that I never carried a bag and I put my um, money in my shoe. So all I had was the money in my shoe and that's it. And so I'd go out and, um, and uh, collect flyers. I was really into collecting the flyers mm -hmm. and I'd fold them up and put them in my shoe and spend money Flowers getting get a little moist hanging on your they shoe. They totally would, but it's okay. Yeah. They're still existing today, so <laughs> they did. maybe it did some kind of crazy chemical reaction and made mm -hmm. them last longer. Um, so the, they never ID'd. I never carried an ID with me, so they never ID'd me. And, and it was, things were different back then, and they didn't, I don't really understand if they just didn't ID me because they, they just thought I looked like I was 21. Um, I don't know if I did. And there was definitely kids. All the kids that went to the Starwood were probably under 21. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe the musicians were. I don't, I don't even know about that. Yeah. Um, so we would go to shows uh, and then hang out at Okie Dogs afterwards. So this is hangout spot on Santa Monica Boulevard. And this at this point, by the time we were going to Okie Dogs, this is where my mom had moved to D.C., and I was 15 and a half and I could drive a car and I was given this VW, this totally trashed VW bug to drive around in because I had to go to school. Mm -hmm. Oops. And, um, and uh, so I was able to go to Okie Dogs and hang out. So my friends all went in this car. We just like jam pack everybody in this car that was totally trashed and we'd drive around and go do things. It was super fun. So from January to June 1981, we, I went to a lot of shows, um, hung out at Okie Dogs a lot. Um, and then moved to D.C. Somewhere in there in April 81 is where I go to D.C. to, um, my mom has us come out there to sort of scope out the scene and then sort of decide where we're going to, she might rent a house. Uh, and that's where I meet um, Danny Ingram, um, John Falls, who's a photographer whose work is actually in the Band of D.C. book that eventually I published. Um, and then uh, Ian and Alec Mackay. So mm -hmm. I met them that in that April of 1981. Well, I guess we'll go back just a little bit before yeah. you left uh, L.A. Coming into that scene, you know, you're, you're talking about the, the sexist or even misogynist yeah. rock bands of the right. 70s. Right. You were yeah. certainly seeing a contrast, probably a lot of women involved in the bands. In um, L.A. Yeah, yeah. In, in L.A., yeah. Totally, so we're talking yeah. before you get to D.C. Uh -huh. uh, what did you think of, of this scene and, and how it was working and, and, it, and its contrast to what you had seen in, in the DC? rock world? No, oh, in, in the, the rock, rock, in the rock yeah. That. Well, you know, the same bands, Starwood, you know, basically had different nights, and so they were booking all these rock bands there, too, as well as the punk bands. Um, the only difference really was, it's almost like a style. The people who were going to the rock shows seemed older, and they mm -hmm. were totally rock and roll with, like, their feathered hair, because you have to remember this is, like, 79 and 80. Right, yeah. Um, and that there was that kind of like scene where like they're dudes they're like server dudes it's the same kind of thing where like we are the dudes and you know here's our chicks you know mm -hmm. that kind of thing and the punk thing it was a little different um it could have been the same but i didn't see it as the same i saw it more as people were on the same even level like on the same plane mm -hmm. uh, so audience guys. and performer yeah right yeah and you know you could be friends with a performer uh the perform you know everybody knew each other the performers on stage were just as much your friends as the people in the audience, mm -hmm. you know? And it was more like a, it was, you felt more participatory in making something happen in the punk scene than you did in the whole rock and roll thing. The rock and roll thing seemed really distant. Yeah, right. You know, and mm -hmm. I think that's what rock and roll is. You know, there's like these rock rock and roll, you know, they're like the gods. Right. You know, and, and that's, everybody else punk is wasn't. looking up. Right, right, and punk wasn't. So that was part of my attraction. I also went, um, it was at some point I went 
I don't even know if it was a date or not, but the guy, the drummer from the Urinals, this band, asked mm-hmm. me if I wanted to go see the show at the L.A. County Museum of Art, which was the um, the Russian avant-garde exhibit. Um, and I went, and my grandmother, my gra- my only grandmother alive at this time was um, Russian, and she grew up, she basically came during the Russian Revolution and ended up in Seattle and ended up in L.A. And so she lived there, and she lived in this Russian community in L.A., and so this exhibit meant two different, th- it had a lot of impact for me because I was thinking about where my family was from, these Russians, and then there were sort of these eccentric artists and they were sort of in this community. And that made me think a lot about how I wanted to be in a sort of community, mm-hmm. like that was doing sort of thinking outside the box, not, I just didn't feel like I was an ordinary person. Like I wasn't ordinary because I wasn't hanging out with the surfers, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to hang out with the surfers. I wanted to find something else, and seeing this exhibit made me realize, okay, there are people like this, There's, there's got to be more of this, and so I think that I was attracted to the punk scene because I felt like this is going to be where I'll find the people I can uh, kind of like connect with. And while you were in LA, did you feel that you were welcome within that community? Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and you weren't. You didn't have a reluctance to go to D.C. I oh, think, totally. We. I mean, I it was think hard. Think LA is a pretty happening it was, place. It was, and it was really hard to move. Um, but it, you know, seeing the article in the Washington Post was good. You know, it was good because they're like, okay, something's happening that's interesting like that. Mm. And do you think I need to meet these people when I get there because they're? Well, I went to tribe. Georgetown because the article said they were in Georgetown, so right. I went to Georgetown yeah. and I found them. Right. <laughs> so that was really funny. It was like four months after the article. And so the article was in January and in April we went to DC and I went to Georgetown and I found them. So that's where I met Danny working at a record store and he said, oh, you should buy this Teen Idols 7-inch, which was the Discord number one. Mm-hmm. And so we bought that and then we're hanging out talking and he's sort of telling telling my sister and I what's, what's going on in the scene. And then John Falls walked in, um, who at the time he didn't, I don't think he was taking photographs back then, but so he was sort of like, oh yeah, well we should... You know, Danny's working. Maybe you, we can go and meet, um, the, you know, go up to Beecher Street and meet Alec and Ian McKay. And so I was like, okay, whatever. And so you knew who they were. No, we didn't know who they were. He's just like, they're really nice. Let's just go up there. Mm-hmm. So then we took a bus up the street and then walked over because it's maybe two miles north of Georgetown, and then met Alec. And then Ian was gone. He was looking at colleges, which is sort of funny because he never went to college. Mm-hmm. But his dad, I think, made him go look at colleges in Boston. Right. So he was there looking at colleges in uh, April. Of eighty one, that was I think you. I don't. Maybe he was already done with high school. I don't remember. I don't know. He might have been already done with high school. Yeah. What were your your early feelings regarding what was going on in D.C. in contrast to what you saw in Los Angeles? Well, L.A. was L.A. is a huge city. There's a lot of kids, so there was a lot of. It was like a huge punk scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a huge scene, and it was really spread over a huge area. So. I mean, you really had to the taking this, taking the bus slash car business. I mean, it would take hours to get to. I mean, hours, you know, two two and a half hours to get to a show taking a bus from where I live to where it was all happening. Mm. In D.C., it was such a small city, and there weren't that many people involved, but they were all really nice, and they were all, you know, in D.C. There, in L.A., the kids were from all different kind of walks of life. In D.C., a lot of the punk kids were mostly from pretty, you know well not well to do families but they they were you know well educated mm-hmm. 
Um, did you feel that you were on the, the same level as them, or lower, higher in terms of? You mean of, DC and LA? Or no, no, in, in terms DC. of you, you and coming into DC, like I felt like was, I was in the same sort of level. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, just the same, you know, same same level. Yeah. And then you know it was funny because uh, when I was in LA, I was really into flips, reading Flipside fanzine. Mm-hmm. Talk about that in the slideshow too. <laughs> but um. um and I asked them if they wanted, and back then there weren't any distributors. So if a band in LA released a record, it was sold only in LA. Mm-hmm. People rarely, it was very rare to get it outside of LA as anywhere, like San Francisco, anywhere in New York. Like Devo, I remember interviewing Mark Mothersbaugh and Devo in like 1986, and he, for some friend, my friend Zine, WDC period. And he said that they just drove around Ohio selling their 7-inch to, like, random record stores. <laughs> right. They're like, well, who the hell are you? You know, mm-hmm. can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did that with Minor Threats 7-inch, the number three, Discord number three, and went to New York, and people are just like, what is this? You know, <laughs> and that was in, like, the summer, of the end of 80, August 81. And they were just, what is, can we play it? I'm like, sure, you can play it. And then they play, like, okay, we'll take all of them. You know, but they were just like, they didn't, you know... Yeah, I guess there were no alternative channels of distribution no, for any of these no. things. No, yeah. so people didn't know what was happening somewhere else. There was no radio. The printed media was really stayed in its own town or city. Mm-hmm. It didn't really go outside of it. So when I asked Flipside, can you can I sell Flipsides in D.C.? They were like, yeah. So they would, you know, they, they, I sold them for a dollar. I had to pay them back 75 cents for each coffee. Yeah, you were so making I mean, like, big money on that. <laughs> I know. So, but it was actually a really good tool to meet mm-hmm. people. I didn't really think about it that way. I just thought it was like, you know, now that I think about it, that's, I just, I can't even believe I'm making these connections now about something that I just never even thought of before. It was like, you know, because I did this with my art later. And this is what I talk about in the slideshow as well, is that I did this with my art. My, I made postcards that I sold everywhere. And what that does is it's a tool for you to go somewhere and have a conversation with somebody, as opposed to just sitting at home in this day and age, like texting or whatever everybody does. Yeah, the, once like, you have a thing, then you're thing. A, a participant. Right. You've got a subject. Right. Yeah, because I remember that from selling zines as well, is that right. I'm not just the guy standing there, I have right. the zines, and now we have something we can you, talk a, about. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And there's like a dialogue is, is sparked by the fact that you have something to talk about. Otherwise, yeah, you're just like, why would anybody talk to you? You're just sitting there on a chair, you know, yeah. like whatever. Yeah. yeah. So it's true. And so I didn't think about that. But, you know, I was like, hey, I'm from L.A. It was like, I think everybody thought, man, that's so cool. These two girls came, moved here from L.A., you mm-hmm. know. And then I was selling Flipside. They were probably just like, this is so fucking cool. Because it was, I mean, in retrospect, it was. Because I was, like, bringing something that nobody else had. Yeah, the knowledge probably at that time it was, was just fairly fun. limited of yeah. like, what was coming out of yeah, that, yeah. that place. I mean, now everybody knows that, you know, the famous L.A. punk scene of the you know, late 70s right. and early 80s. But at the time, it probably just so there was strange. there was some, there was a record store, Olsen's, that sold uh, records. And then there was Yesterday and Today that sold records. And they did get some of these records. But it was, it, it wasn't like the same, ch- I don't know where what distributor they were using, but there were a couple distributors, but they only took the ones that were kind of bigger, mm-hmm. you know, none of this obscure stuff. Like, so Ian and I started, we met each other in April and we kind of liked each other. So we started writing to each other because I went back to LA to finish high school. And, um, so I started mailing him record, like obscure stuff. So like mm-hmm. Annette Eden's subtitle seven inch, which is such a great record. Um, the TSOL, uh, 12 inch that, um, you know, and it's just like, and then he mailed me some stuff, some test pressings, which I still have, which is so cool. So, you know, this exchange of these things that were 
you know, and this connected to something about me, about wanting to be in a community. Like I was talking about that show, the Russian avant-garde show it was sort of like, this is it, you know, this was the community and it was really exciting because people were really creating stuff. And mm -hmm. when I came back to DC in June, moved permanently back and my mom rented a house in DC, she rented this Victorian house on its own separate block. Like one of the like houses like here, you know, it was, it was just two stories, but it was probably in the country when it was built in like 1890. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and then the streets were built around the house and it's on its own block and it had a basement. So in the summer of 81, all these bands practiced in there because there was nowhere the bands could practice because most of the houses in DC were row houses and you could hear this music in the mm -hmm. house next door. Right, yeah. So... And considering the noise that they would be making right, in the neighborhood. Right, right, right. So, and your mother was on board with having these? She was, I, she, you know, my mom's, th I think her whole thing was, it's better that they, it's better that her daughters stay at home with these people coming to the house than them going off somewhere else. Yeah, well, that, that makes sense. <laughs> so I think she was really into it. Although she had to get some kind of like high security clearance because she ended up working for Ronald Reagan in the, oh. yeah, in the, um, <laughs> Department of, the Office of Presidential Personnel at first. And so... So the the like the guy there was like a secret service guy always watching us so he once but called he had her a lot one to day see then, right? yeah he did because yeah. he was called one day saying um, there's a guy on your porch who seems to be friends with your daughters and he has a blue what they call like Indian haircut like a mohawk <laughs> like he actually right. was able to say mohawk yeah uh, is this somebody that you could identify and is this somebody that you know you know and she goes oh yes that's one of their friends like mm -hmm. she just was like all a matter of fact about it <laughs> i guess it's the best approach apparently she got security clearance <laughs> that is impressive yes it is good they made some wise choices because we didn't we were harmless mm -hmm. and there was another time where i was um so i got a box of flip sides and yesterday and today would buy the flip sides so i would Ian and Henry Rollins, Ian and Henry were really good friends, and he had a car. Not everybody had cars, so he had a car and lived kind of close to me. So I was going to, I guess this was in the fall, so maybe it wasn't Henry Rollins because he was gone. I don't know where I was. I was gone, so I said, oh, can you pick up the zines? I'll leave them in the side. It was the old school, like, coal chute where there's, like, the, the doors are slanted like this and you open them. Uh, mm -hmm, yeah. I'll just put it inside that door into the basement. And, and uh, he goes, okay, fine. So the security guy was watching it and they like run out of the car, open the door, grab a box and get in the car and drive away. Um, some guy drove up in this green Plymouth and <laughs> some guy walked up. a mysterious out. package. Right, right. Picked up a mysterious package and drove away. Oh yeah, that's my daughter's friend. That's fine. Not she drugs, sells a magazine. She side. sells a magazine. Yeah. It's fine. You know, because my mom, so I didn't have a checking account. I didn't have a bank account. I mean, I was like 16, I guess. So my mom, I'd give my mom the cash and she'd write the check and then I'd mail it to Flipside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the old timey days. Yeah, right. Exactly. Were, were you taking pictures yet or did that come later? So in LA, I actually took these awesome pictures and my camera got stolen with the film uh, in the car. And, and what bands did you wind up losing on the It wasn't bands. Either? It was actually pictures of my friends going to clubs, hanging mm -hmm. out, which would have been amazing I to bet, have now. I bet, yeah. So amazing. I'm so mad. Such a bummer. So I didn't have a camera and I didn't, ha I just didn't have a camera. So I borrowed a camera in 1981 from, I think Mike Hampton. I'm not sure. It's actually kind of funny now because I think actually I didn't buy borrow it from him. I think I borrowed it from Ian who borrowed it from Mike. And when Ian lent it to me, he said, I don't think Mike know. I don't think Mike remembers that I have this. So just borrow it. But just keep in mind that Mike might, I might ask you like, is that my camera? Mm -hmm. Like, 
you know, and I was like, okay. So then I was kind of paranoid about it, like, uh oh, am I in trouble if Mike Hampton sees me with this <laughs> right. camera? Yeah. So it was always sort of like this, like, I've got this camera, I better not show it to Mike Hampton. He might take it away from me. Mm. <laughs> so the summer of 81, I took photos and then I stopped. Um, and then I went to the Corcoran School of Art starting in the fall of 81. And that's where I processed all the photos I took in the summer going into the fall. And then he took the camera back. So I didn't have a camera for a while. So I don't remember how I navigated the camera thing in the end. I ended up buying something eventually, but there's time, there's definitely big time periods where I didn't take photos and I really didn't take very many photos of bands. So that summer I took photos of sort of the shows we went to, but not all the time because it was expensive and I couldn't mm -hmm. afford the film. I mean, it was, it was all really expensive. Right. So I couldn't really afford the film and you know, I had to get a job. So I eventually got a job so I could buy film and stuff. Um, but, uh, so the band of DC book has most of the photos aren't mine. There's some like, certain time periods where I took photos and then certain time periods I didn't mm -hmm. and um, uh, and like minor threat like the photos of minor threat I took in maybe 82 those were um, like they asked me like can you take photos and I think I borrowed somebody's camera and took those photos oh no those I shot with the so I eventually got a camera somehow and I had one so I guess in 83 I had a camera okay a and you, you came up here at one point Right, for a show yeah. in Philly. I mean, maybe yeah. you should tell the story of so that because the, it's a fairly interesting. So the, the show we went to was I drove up with Ian and my sister, and I think Alec was in the car, Alec Mackay and his brother. I actually think there were five, five or six people in the car, and I can't remember the other two people because basically not enough people. Not everybody had cars again, so when you went somewhere, you were like jammed in the oh, car. Oh, I know what that's like. Yeah. yeah, so we were all, we went to this show, and it was Black Flag and I think it was SOA, and so I think it was Henry Rollins' last show with SOA before he joined Black Flag. Mm -hmm. There might have been some other band, and the Flyers... This was the Starlight Ballroom right. show yeah, yeah. in uh, Kensington. Yeah. Yeah, right, 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 mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So the story is actually longer than you think. So there's, at some point, before Black Flag, I think it was before Black Flag started, there was some riot occurred or some kind of fight happened out front. I don't know. I didn't see it. But I heard about it, and they were just said, just go inside. So we went inside and saw Black Flag. Then we left, and it was kind of scary because we didn't know, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Mm -hmm. And um, it, we started driving home, and for some reason, Alec, some people went in different cars on the way back. So on the way down, it was just me, my sister, and Ian in his car. And Anna, my sister, just we were just discussing the story, and she thinks Alec was in the car and then got out of the car because the car broke down in a tunnel in Philly and it was this weird tunnel on 95 where there was another tunnel next to it and it was empty. Like it was either like the old tunnel that mm -hmm. they weren't using anymore. And there was this, so we broke down in the tunnel and pulled over and there was like a security guy in the other tunnel next to a door. It was totally weird. And the guy goes, you guys broke down? We're like, yeah. And he goes, oh, we, there's access to the street if you go through here, this door. So he went through this door in the tunnel. You just left and, the car there? Yeah, because yeah. it was broken yeah, down. Yeah. And you, this is 1981. There's no cell phones, yeah, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah. you have to leave it. Yeah. So we went, and what his alternator went like kaboot. So that means his battery's dead and he needs an alternator and a battery. And that was always like the scam in New York. You know, I remember in, in the 80, early 80s was that either people would steal the battery out of your car or something, and then you'd have to get a new battery, and then they'd charge you a huge amount of money mm -hmm. for the battery. Mm -hmm. So it's this battery thing. So, um, so we went into the door and climbed up these stairs that were like these metal great stairs that went up like 
forever. And we climbed out of a manhole and we were <laughs> in right. a park called Society Hill. Mm -hmm. yeah, you, yeah. I don't it's know. Part, it's a part of the city. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was a park in Society Hill. That's where we ended up. And we slept in the park on benches. <laughs> I mean, it was like three in the morning. We're like, oh, I don't know what to do. It was yeah. like, it must have been summertime. So we slept in the park. And then when the sun rose, because we really didn't sleep, I mean, it was like, you're kind of scared. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, yeah, where are we? Yeah. Right? And this was the first time you went to Philly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. And there was Fine, there was a poster on the wall for um, a band playing. It was um, that I still have somewhere, which weird. I don't know where it is, but I thought I had it. Some English band that was playing in Philadelphia that I don't remember. I thought they were broken up, and it was weird that I saw this poster. It was kind of cool with silkscreen, all these different colors. It was a really cool poster mm -hmm. on the back of some like salvaged cardboard that was maybe cardboard used to make cereal boxes or something. Man. Um, and uh, we walked around and finally got whatever the batteries we needed and then to get fixed. And then, you know, we went on our merry way sometime that day on a Sunday right. when it was like sunny and hot out. But it was, um, it was pretty it, scary. Yeah. <laughs> You'll meet uh, later tonight. There's a, a gentleman who's going to be there who was at that show. Right. So is that the guy who's yeah, ta talking on Facebook? Yeah, Chuck Meehan. He, okay, he talked good. about that show okay, too good. because the, uh, the locals, yeah. the sort of... Uh, Angry white white people were not so happy about the uh, the punks coming into the neighborhood. And yeah, that was, that was the initial. Friction. That's what it was. Yeah, was, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. interesting. That'll be interesting to hear a story about yeah, that. Yeah, he'll, he'll be um, able to tell you about that. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that story from other people's points of view turns up in some of the different interviews. Because oh, it, it does. Yeah, because it's a very infamous Philadelphia story. That show. Oh wow. That ride, and then there was a ride at the Dead Kennedy show, and those two shows are these sort of mythic events in the city. So people who went there. You know, we'll, we'll Somebody told me, I think Alec Mackay told me that, because I, I told him about this because he's not on Facebook. I told him I'm doing this talk and I posted the flyer from that show and I told him, I was like, did you know that Billy, I mean, uh, John Hargadon started it? Because John Hargadon on Facebook admits to starting this fight yeah. with somebody else. Uh -huh. And then and then that guy you mentioned. Uh, no, Chuck, Chuck, me. Chuck, yeah. yeah. He says uh, it's Billy and Jay, which I know who they are. I can't believe yeah. he remembers their names. Um, and so that makes sense that all three of them were there. But Alex says that, um, shit, what was I going to say? Oh, no, I totally forgot what Alex said. Alex said that, uh, fuck, what, is, what was I going with this? I can't remember. I can't yeah, remember. I actually might have, it might have been a Dead Kennedy show that was the friction with the members of the community. And that the, the Black Flag show was, I think, friction between the Philly punks and the DC punks because I, I think as some people say like they, the DC people thought that they were cooler than everybody else and they were really tough and oh, really? that wound up causing a fight. I, since <laughs> I, I was not well, there. Philly and Jay yeah. and John would be the three guys that would cause a fight. Yeah. That's I, so funny. Yeah, We'll have to, when we have the dinner tonight, talk to Chuck who yeah. was there to see the, the, the Philly point of view of what happened between That'd be the really Philly and the DC punks. Well, because Billy and Jay were totally it, you know, like, they're always drunk. And mm -hmm. like they're always kind of fucked up, so yeah. they could have picked a fight with somebody, being yeah. like tough, tough boy thing. Yeah, but probably not a good idea to come into another city and then to pick a fight with the people who live no, in that city. No, it's so dumb. <laughs> and certainly not this. No, city. it's totally dumb. Yeah. Right, that's amazing. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty incredible. I wish I could remember what Alex said. That I'm trying to remember what he just told me about. Um, God. <laughs> oh, well, well. In, in seeing all these these bands at the time, you, you you're spending time with with bands who became mythical not only within the realm of punk hardcore but really within music and did you have any feeling when you're spending time with these people and you're seeing them perform that they're doing something that's going to resonate well yeah the ages well um well there's these moments it's funny there's these moments that happen that i'm, I'm like huh 
you know, like this is, but, um, so the, like I described already going to New York and so I had like a stack of maybe 21 of the number three minor thread seven inch, the red cover. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we put those together. Like I helped when I met Ian, he was like, Oh, I'm making the lyric sheet. And I did some of the lettering on it, which is really funny to talk about them. <laughs> do the lettering. And then, you know, they got them made. There was a thousand made and we hung out in the basement of Beecher street, cutting, like cutting them with exacto blades and then fold scoring, folding right. them and then yeah. gluing them. Um, and writing notes in them and all this stuff like to you know in the flaps like hanging out on this date like we put dates and like watching saturday night live and stuff like that so uh -huh. if you were to take it apart you might get some clue oh, as to what we were doing yeah probably um, a bad idea to take apart a really rare record to see i don't know there, just but... to see what's in there but there's the the very early ones were done that way and i have those there's five i have five of them i wonder if they could be notes. x ray or held up to the sun and you can see oh yeah maybe that would be yeah, cool. yeah yeah better than wrecking them. so those 21 that i sold in new york when that guy said well uh, you know, they probably made a judgment call on the way I looked that this is going to be like, I don't know what the hell you're selling, you know, girly girl, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh -huh. And then when they played it and they're like, how many do you have? We'll take them all. And I was like, well, I only have seven left. It's funny because I consigned some to some store that I was like, th that was where I learned consignment doesn't work even uh, like years later. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I was like stubborn. Like I would go back, you know, to New York. I'm like, you guys sold these and I want the money. Like yeah. I was like, cause I was sort of like this kind of, I was like, I'm not going to let this slide. It was a dollar 50, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or a dollar. You're, you're ultimately owed the like $7 and 95 right. cents to get back. I mean, it was just crazy how little money it was, but it was a lot of money back. I mean, it was a lot of money relative to how much money it's all proportional to, you know, who you are and what yeah, you have, sure. you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but like that moment where he just dropped the needle and there was like a couple seconds and he's like, how many do you, how many do you have? Mm -hmm. You know, that was at, um, what's that place called that's in the basement, um, that was pretty well known. The yep. guy, uh, it was in the basement originally. Bleaker Bob's. Bleaker Bob's. Okay, it was Bleaker yeah. Bob's. Yeah. Um, and I think it was Bob or whatever, the owner, but I think it was named Bob, right? Wasn't uh, it? Probably. Yeah. 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 Or Bleaker. Right. I don't, yeah. It was on Bleecker Street. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, uh, um, and then um, it was, you know, it's funny because that's like what I do with my art, like I did with my postcards. And it's the same thing. Like I like to do this. I like to be a participator and I like to interact with people. I don't want to, I don't want to hang out, you know, I don't want to hang out and just do just, I want some, I want my energy to be invested in something to make something happen. Mm -hmm. So this is something I've been thinking about a lot because I still wonder about like, sometimes you have to check in with yourself throughout your life and go, okay, what are you doing? Is this still doing what you want it to be doing? Like, am I investing my, who I am as a person and like where my thoughts are, you know, do you know what I mean? And yeah. Your energy and how mm. am I investing that time? Am I wasting it on what I'm doing or should I be doing something else? Yeah, because you have a finite life and right. a finite amount right. of energy. So you want right. to make sure these things are right, properly right. aligned. And then do you want it to be something useful? So, Music, minor threat. So the summer, July of 81, there was a show at the 930 Club. And a, it's funny because I mentioned it to Ian recently and he, he can, says that it's another show that this happened, but I totally disagree with him. Well, he's not <laughs> July here, so i So July 81 is at 930 Club where these bands, minor threat, GI, and something else, some other band, Youth Brigade, play. And um, all these people from out of town show up. And it's at the 930 Club. All the other shows before when I was in DC, which seemed like an eternity, those like three months, mm -hmm. it seemed like forever. They were all like in these bars that these, you know, kids booked, which is so funny because they're underage and they're booking shows and bars and stuff. It was just so cool. Like, you know, the idea that 
um, even then, the idea that these kids were doing, they weren't letting anything be a hindrance to what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. They were just doing it and using the world was their resource and you could figure out a way to make something happen if you really wanted it to happen. And so being, you know, the punk scene in LA, you could see that, but it was, there were so many more people, you weren't directly involved. In DC, when I moved there, it was like, you know, I was just instantly involved with it because like I was one of the resources for this whole thing you know mm -hmm. like I wanted to help and I want to be a part of it so hell yeah I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do all this stuff and let's do this you right. know yeah and you it was like mo the momentum was like it was crazy because it was so fast and it was faster than you could even imagine like you had we had no idea so when that show happened in July and all these people came from like Boston or New York or somewhere else we're like, where are these people coming from and how do they know about this? It was just because the 930 Club, Club advertised it probably somewhere where somebody saw it. Mm -hmm. And then somebody told somebody else and that sort of... that Yeah, they can only really rely on word of mouth. Right, it's word of mouth yeah. and then some advertising. But in those days, again, there was no radio broadcasting this. Mm -hmm. There was no TV broadcasting this. There were no, practically no newspapers writing about this. So it was a paid advertisement somewhere or somebody writing a letter or sending a flyer to somebody that then that one flyer communicated to so many people right. and then those, those people show up. And so it's just the idea of that, the impact of that, uh, you know, yeah, it's like a seed that, pod bursting right, and all the totally, little seeds shooting all totally. over the place. And, and it's just, it's so there. exciting. And when yeah. that happened, it was really exciting. Like I thought it was really exciting. I don't, I, I still want to ask Ian, like, did you actually think it was really exciting? Like, I thought it was really exciting. How can you know? it not be really exciting? Because you're seeing this thing that you do, but other people appreciating it and you know. Well, then all of a sudden it was like you felt like you were really on riding a wave. Like you felt like at this point, you had you were swimming in the ocean and you were trying to catch the wave, mm -hmm. and then you're on the wave and you're just like now standing there. So you're just standing there and all the shit's happening. Are you, you able know? to enjoy it, or is there a fear that it's going to crest? I didn't even think about right. any of that stuff. Right. Like you just. Because right. you're like 15 or 16 and yeah. you're just like, whatever's, ha I don't know what the fuck's happening, but this is happening, right? Yeah. You're just going. Mm -hmm. And so it was just that same kind of feeling of like going ahead and this energy and you could feel the energy. Like, I don't want to be like hippy dippy about this or whatever. And I grew up in California, <laughs> but you, you know, I do go back to California once in a while and I'm reminded of like how California, California is because it still is that way, which is great. I'm so glad it is. But you can really feel the energy. It was, mm. there was, it's real. And so, like going back, and this is not that long before that, where I was thinking about that exhibit, which I at that time I stopped thinking about that exhibit. It's only till now that I sit, sit in retrospect and hindsight and think, you know, that exhibit that I saw about the Russian avant-garde. That's what I was looking for. Was this like intellectual kind of like convergence and energy to make something happen. Mm -hmm. That's that almost is beyond what you would imagine could ever happen, or that you think is humanly possible in some way. And, you, know, well, you, not, you talk about an energy, and I think that the, the the proof of that is that energy hasn't dissipated. I mean, the, the the individual members may be dispersed in different areas, but the reverberations from what happens in that period in D.C. are still with a lot of people today. I think it still totally awesome. spurs I on young. I mean, like, and part of it in doing this project is I talk to people who are significantly younger than you or me. Right. You know, Teenagers who still are drawn to these things, not looking at it as a as a retro thing, but as something that, that still speaks to them, and then inspires people to do. That's pretty awesome. Interesting so like, yeah. so it's like the Russian avant-garde exhibit for yeah. me. Yeah, it is. It's, like, it's precisely like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's it, so amazing. It's, you're disattached from it in terms of time. Right. But the reverberations can move through time and inspire people to this action, to I this mean, activity. That's, it's totally amazing. That's great. And that's why the reason why the Banner DC book was out of print. And then I kept on thinking like, well, people really, you know, I get, I get these emails from people like, you know, I just want to thank you for putting out that book. Like these email, like emails from people or notes or letters or before it was letters and then emails, random ones, like just mm -hmm. random, like once. And I have this email address, CynthiaDiscord.com, which is ton, tons of spam. So if somebody puts a really plain subject line, it gets deleted. I don't even read it. Yeah. So I probably missed some of them. So once and I'm like, that's a weird one. And I open it, it's like somebody thanking me for publishing the band in DC. I'm like, fuck, like what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what? I knew a lot of you young know? women who gravitated towards that book because this was a book that was put out by women. And I think it, it showed some that's people. That's pretty awesome. You can, you can be active in this thing. Right. And it's not just... A bunch of guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think well, that it was a great source of inspiration and it's sort of a perennial, you know, you republish the book and then more people discover that this, this happened. That's pretty great. Well, that book, just so everybody knows how hard it was to make it again because we had to actually scan the photos out of the book. Mm -hmm. Like I waited as long as possible in the digital A's so that we could actually make, it's like a bootleg of the book. So only a hundred of the original prints of the photos I had, which were all the ones I printed and I kept them. Some people gave me net, so some people just, so going back to that book. Yeah, I guess we should maybe. I mean, right. Yeah, let's not talk about the end of the book. Yeah, let's, yeah I want to what talk about the creation of the book. Are we, yeah. We're still cool, right? Yeah, yeah. we're totally. Um, well, I wanted to get to something because I think sequentially it's, it's a bit before that. Yeah. You created the, the cover for the Out of Step record. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is something that, um, it, to me, this is a fascinating idea because this, this record cover has is way beyond, I mean, it's, it's one of the most I didn't iconic. wear my necklace, but I have this necklace of a black sheep that oh, this guy in L.A. made. I have seen <laughs> so many, and this is something that actually I'm going to bring up later when we do the, right. your thing. But um, the, it's such an iconic cover, even outside of punk, but in the world of like iconic rock records or music records. So it's, it must be, I'm curious to know your feeling of how, if you've created this image you know, all of these years ago, and you've seen it reproduced it's so on weird. T-shirts and posters and right. weird bootlegs right, right. and mashups. Right. What does it mean to you to see that? I mean, you created that. It's thing, so weird. You know? Well, well, going back to this whole energy thing, and then just to, so in '81 I started going to art school, and I was kind of made fun of to go to art school because it's arty and it's not punk. Right. Um, but I was like, you know, fuck it, man. I am going to art school. This is where I'm going. And I took graphic design. It was before the computer age of graphic design, so it was all hand done. It was super hard. Everything's hand rendered. So in 83, when Minor Threat asked to do the cover, by then, in my world of the punk rock thing, they got too guy-oriented. And, the, and there's that woman who made that film from the back of the room, which is about all the girls in the, went into the back and all the guys were in the front because it got violent. Mm -hmm. It got violent. Because in D.C., the sort of slam dancing thing, before it was slam dancing, it was kind of slam dancing, but it was like goofy and with your friends. And it was super fun and everybody was involved. When, when strangers showed up, in July of 1981, like people from outside the DC scene, it became, there was a question of sort of like the rules of the game of dancing. Mm -hmm. I imagine you got dancing. people coming in from Boston, which was known right. to be a really So all of city. a sudden, when this question of these rules, which were, there weren't any rules, but it was sort of like an understanding because you were all friends. All of a sudden, sometimes you weren't always friends and it became more violent. And so when that happened, and like the Philly thing that happened, because it was around the same time, it was exactly around the same time. Mm -hmm. So the violence got worse. And I was like, I'm so not into violence. So I'm not into this at all. And I can't believe this is so. 
I kind of walked out from that and went to art school. So mm -hmm. I was kind of like disconnected more, but you know, obviously by then I was going, you and I were going out. So, I mean, obviously I was still involved. So, um, but I wasn't going to shows as much because I was going to school. So they asked me to do the cover and, you know, I talked about it and, and he was like, well, you know, I really don't want to have a cover like a typical kind of hardcore cover that's been going on. Like there are like certain people who are drawing covers and he didn't really want those covers, that kind of cover. And he's just like, what do we do? And he's like, well, I don't know. And like, I don't, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. He's like, well, I was just, he was like, I was just kind of thinking about a black sheep jumping away from a flock of white sheep. And I was like, and that one was really funny because it was so, some of Ian's lyrics are just, that sort of fit with Ian somehow, mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, oh yeah, that'd be good. And so one day I was sitting there, I mean, literally, my, I still was living with my mom in the kitchen, because she had this big kitchen, and I was sitting there, and I just, I was like, okay, those sheep. And I had a National Geographic that has a flock of sheep that was about New Zealand, and mm -hmm. then I had this flock of sheep. Right. So I just put the National Geographic down, and I just drew with this white flock of sheep, like, you know, with the, with the marker and then the watercolor, kind of like drab. Mm -hmm. And then it was just, I don't know where this all came from. And I was like, oh yeah, the black sheep. He's like the goofy guy. And then it was like crayon. <laughs> and so then there's the crayon, yeah. the, like the goofy guy who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm like totally not, this is not my scene over here. That's what he's doing. He's like, that is not my scene over there. I'm going this way. He's all the cooler for it. <laughs> and he's got, and his eyes are purposely open. So some people draw it and they're just dots, but they're, his eyes are supposed to be open. Yeah, I guess it's, yeah, so it's, it's there's like yeah, he's full intention. Yeah, he's like totally yeah, right, right. like mm -hmm. knows he's going this way and this is okay. I'm just going this way. And I, you know, I really didn't, I mean, now that I think about it, you know, when you really start thinking about it, at the time, everything else was violent, and this is my own personal... I didn't analyze myself to come up with this black sheep, this whole sheep thing in the drawing, but just like the cover of the band in D.C. as well, there's no violence shown in the cover mm -hmm. of the band in D.C. where some books about punk scenes, there's like a violent image, there's some kind of violent imagery, you yeah. know, just slam dancing. Um, but and same with the minor third cover there's nothing violent about that that just represents the choice that you're making in your life mm -hmm. and there's nothing violent about it yeah. it's just making it's just really establishing that it's okay to be not part of this group of white sheep right. it's okay and i think that sometimes the white sheep can be the punks who are busy killing totally. each other and you're saying i don't want to That's be a part of this violence because i think it's maybe part of the reason why this resonates with people is that the thing that was interesting about the DC scene was that in some ways you can be outsiders from the outsiders because they're putting forth, say, straight edge. You're not going to drink. You're not going to get fucked up. And, right. and then Ian becomes very vocal against violence. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people, and I would include myself in this, who when they came into this scene thought that it was going to be filled with these egalitarian ideas right, and right. found that it was right, right. a bunch of bozos hitting each other in the right, fucking right, right, head. Right. So when you found the voices who spoke out against that, mm -hmm. then those were the, the minority of the minority that you were drawn to. That's true. And I think in a way the cover can even you know represent that. You may be leaving mainstream society, but there's also more... That's totally right. You're right. They can be represent all different kinds of things. Yeah. And yeah, I, th yeah. I think that's part of the reason maybe why this thing resonates for people for so long uh. is because they can be... Well, it's like, you're right. And the black sheep can mean so much without anybody knowing what the black sheep is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, you know what I mean? The crayon drawn black sheep on its own yeah. somewhere else, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's on its own. It means and something. surely you've seen this thing all over the place. It's so crazy. World. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's totally always... weird. Do you, do you almost want to point out to people like, you know, I, you know, I, I, I made I that did, fucking I actually thing, do you know? because it's actually, again, now that we're talking about this and this is the first time I'm making this connection, 
it's pretty handy in a way that it's happened that way for me because like the flip sides and then me as an artist selling these postcards that I'd sell of my photographs or whatever in museum stores and stuff, it's the tool to have a conversation. Now the tool is tattooed on everybody, so I can just go to them and have the conversation. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I don't yeah. have to have anything anymore. <laughs> I don't have to have the object anymore. I don't have to have flip side. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to do that. That's really funny. I never thought about that. So I can just go, I've done that. Yeah, and I sometimes yeah, think now, I'm like, look at me, someone. what do I look like to this? I actually try to reverse it. I'm like, what does this person think of me coming up to them saying, you know, I drew that. That's my drawing that you mm -hmm. have tattooed on your arm. And I sometimes I think that they think, I think that I like to do it because I'm like, you know, look, I'm 51 years old. And in a way, what I'm saying is that, you know, you, you, you know, you might be 24 or how old you are, that this represents something really important to you. But this goes from generation to generation that mm. that was important to me. And this is important to you. And I'm kind of making that point. Like, yeah. I kind of want to do that. Like, I might look like, eventually I'm just going to look like some crazy old lady doing it, which is going to be awesome, you know? Because <laughs> it's like, you know what? You got to be radical. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you this. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm supposed to say this, but when, prior to this interview, my brother's being interviewed by somebody and this, this guy met you right as yeah, soon as yeah, he was yeah. leaving. And right. he, he sent a text message to my brother by accident. And it said, interviewed Bull today, went really well, met Cynthia Connolly, was totally starstruck. <laughs> and then he was like, he was embarrassed because he was so, you know, starstruck by seeing you. So I think you'd still, you know, get that reaction because of these things. That's really that funny. You created, you know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I just think of me as just like, I mean, that's cool, but I mean, I'd rather just hang out and have conversations like this, but and like, But it I'm does really give you that glad. starting point though. I guess that's the, the thing, the same way that like if you're presenting the flip side zine, you know, yeah. you've got something that yeah, now, yeah. Are, we, we, you know, they know this work that you did and now you can talk about that right, or right. something else. Right. Like, and the and this whole thing with doing the talks for the band in DC, even now, first off, when the band in DC came out in 1988. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. Let's talk about yeah, the, okay. how did this book come about. So I went to I graduated from art school in '85. I skipped 12th grade because it was too complicated. My mom moved to DC, so I took the GED. So I went to college, which was art school, from '81 to '85. So I was pretty young. I was 20, 20, probably 20 when I graduated. I wasn't even 21 yet. So then. Um, and then I was kind of like, what the fuck do I do now? I was like mm -hmm. really like kind of a, kind of like bummed out. And cause I, cause I didn't really want to do graphic design and commercial work, which is what I studied. And, um, cause my mom wanted me to, because she said that was a good way to make money. Mm -hmm. But then yeah. I was like, uh, so, uh, I went on this road trip in 85 and I went to I got a driveway car to go to Texas and I asked Ian if he wanted to go with me. He's like, yeah, I'll go to Texas. We can visit Tim Kerr. So we visited Tim Kerr from the band, the big boys. And mm -hmm. then he went back to DC and then I got a, I flew to San Francisco and I met, um, Tim Yohannan and, and Martin Sprouse at Maxim rock and roll. And then, and then I went back and I, my dad lived in San Francisco. So I visited my dad and then I came back to DC. And then they asked me late, like a couple months later, do you want to come out here and work on Maxim Rock and Roll? And I was like, totally, yeah. So mm -hmm. I went out there and was there for maybe six or seven months and worked on Maxim Rock and Roll and lived in this group house with Tim Yohannan, Martin Sprouse, and one other person. And it was there we did this zine called Life is a Bowl Full of Cherries by Murray Bowles. Mm -hmm. And it was a photo zine. It was like the first photo zine. And it was all these photos that Murray Bowles took of shows in San Francisco. And we were putting it together. And this is, again, kind of... Computers were, we were definitely using a Macintosh to do the word processing part, and then you would output the text, and then the text would be glued onto um, mm -hmm. layout boards, so yeah. with wax. And so 
we were doing that layout of that whole thing and it was there both martin and i would do spend hours hanging out together doing this stuff and we were both talking about i was like you know i gotta go back to dc and he's like why i go i gotta make this book about the dc punk scene because if i don't do it somebody else is gonna do it and it's gonna suck because mm -hmm. i don't want it to be like the hardcore california book that just came out it was like last gas put out a book called hardcore california and the pages were really thin you could see through like the photo and the text and just was like kind of eh. you know it was like kind of low quality yeah. and it was like a you know and i was like what happens if somebody did that about dc and who would that be and so i was i was like i gotta go back and use yeah and martin was saying i, I want to do books too and so we would hang out talking about books a lot together mm -hmm. and so i left and went to dc and went and thought i thought well leslie clegg um took a ton of photos of shows and she was really kind of more an artist and made handmade books and zines and stuff she was more like an artist than a lot of the other people in the punk scene like she created a lot of stuff and i asked her i was like do you want to do this book together and she's like yeah totally so we started having these meetings mm. and we just started collecting i don't know how we divided up but we basically started uh calling people saying i think i was in charge of this calling people saying we we're going to do this book about the dc punk scene we're not sure what the time period is going to be but we want to see what kind of photos there were and mm -hmm. if you want to contribute we can't pay anybody because you know right. it's going to cost a million yeah. dollars so people started giving us a, but people didn't believe us at first and it was like a real pain in the ass because people just didn't believe that i was going to do it and you know like certain photographers well i don't have time to give you photos how about if i just give you the negatives like kind of crazy give me <laughs> so yeah, they gave yeah. me their negatives so i went through it so I had to make contact sheets, go through all that stuff, and print photos. I mean, it took mm -hmm. forever. So it was like this it. long, drawn-out process of getting photos and then putting it all together, dating everything, and then, <coughs> um, and then, um, like figuring out what was missing, like what we thought was missing, and then what time period was it going to be? So it started in '79 because we kept on getting fo older photos. And it seemed like appropriate. I moved there in 81, but I didn't know anything about 79 and 80. So I relied on other people to help with the sort of like, you know, giving me input as to what was possibly missing or, you know, but all those photos that Lucian per Perkins took and maybe 79, 80 had to be in the book because they were so awesome. And mm -hmm. he didn't even know where they were. Like he didn't, that whole, which is funny because now a whole book was published of his photos, particularly um, recently that were in the band in DC. And, he didn't even know when I asked him for them in 1986, he didn't even know where they were. He said they were in some closet and they're beautiful 11 by 14 prints that mm -hmm. he did for the Washington Post. Like they had a dark room. It was for an article, the Washington Post, and he made these stunning 11 by 14 prints that just, they're stunning. And it was funny because he's like, you can just keep them. And I was like, no, 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 I return everything to everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of funny because I'm like, God, I wish I kept them. Yeah, they're really yeah, stunning right. photos. Yeah. Um, really beautiful prints that you just can't you can't get prints like that now mm -hmm. just they don't even make the paper and the chemicals are different so um anyway so the book came together it took two years so it was two years of extensive so it was mostly mostly leslie and i um and i also collected the stories from people i had a recording walkman mm -hmm. uh and so i would go to shows mostly and record stories and i'd say i mean i'm doing this book and just tell me a story like you were hanging out and we told stories about certain shows because everybody had these stories. I always told stories in DC. So mm -hmm. that's how I started. It was really hard to get people going. But once I started collecting stories, I could then say, well, you know, Jay said this and so-and-so said this. And how about this? This is what I remember from, you know, 
this time and people would tell stories but it was hard for people to tell stories because it wasn't that long ago mm -hmm. so they didn't really see it as something that was something to like, preserve yeah it wasn't right. part of a history right right yeah yeah like why would we want to remember this yeah because I mean, literally, I was going. The book was eventually it was seventy nine to eighty five, and then there's a couple of pictures in eighty six. But I started in eighty six, mm -hmm. so eighty six, and by eighty eight, so it was going to eighty five. So the book <laughs> covers to eighty five, like it's some historic document, and it's mm -hmm. published in eighty eight. Right. And the reason why I really wanted to do it was because of what we were describing earlier about the that kind of that title that way, writing that wave and the energy mm -hmm. like it was something that really happened it was very specific time period and that's really what I wanted to capture was that time period and I didn't want it to be an essay writing somebody writing about it with the like as a non-participator and it's more like the viewer mm -hmm. I really wanted it to be that it was really created by the participators like everybody had a story or a something to say about it. And there weren't a lot of lasting documents like that. I mean, there were zines, but the zines tended to be sort of a throw. No, you're you know, right. They eventually fall apart. So there weren't really people right. trying to define well, something. That's, right. And then I think it's especially interesting that it's so close to that time. Right. You know, that the memories aren't necessarily foggy looking back on the past, that these are really a very immediate right. yeah. memories. You know, memory, yeah. like you say, like last year. And you know. I wanted it on nice paper, like, you know, mm -hmm. because because already Maximum Rock and Roll, the Early issues of that and Flipside were just deteriorating. Yeah, I have I have issues that look like parchment. They look like they're made. I know in they're like Egypt. crinkly. It's like a scab. Like, they're about to like staple. yeah. They'll and and when I used to go to estate, I used to be really into going to estate sales in D.C. because there's all this awesome stuff mm -hmm. in the East Coast and the West Coast. There wasn't as much stuff out there. So, I mean, we would my sister and I would go to estate sales and I would take buy old photos and stuff and take them apart and I would just see how the paper destroyed every the paper destroys everything because it's acidic. And realizing that you really needed to have higher quality paper if you wanted to last. So, mm -hmm. I mean, even that experience was like, okay, we can't do newsprint for this. This is going to be something that's not newsprint. So it was trying to make it punk too, because even then I was really sensitive to the idea of making it. You can't make it too nice because people will say like, what the hell are you doing? Like mm -hmm. this is too nice. Yeah, coffee table book for people right. who live people in a squat. People didn't want that. Yeah. It didn't make sense back then. Yeah. And so. It, it's kind of funky in its own way, um, but it was nice. I mean, it was kind of nice back then to have that book. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be almost like a yearbook type of thing because that was the only way I could think of how to document it because also it was still happening. So it's just like this is just a time, this is just a certain time period. It's still happening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose you, you don't, don't want to give people the idea that there's a conclusion. This, yeah, this is, is a no tombstone conclusion. and you've written right. this, uh, you know, right. soliloquy to say goodbye right. to this thing. It's, right. It's, it's an not ongoing, done. yeah. Right. So that's what it, it intends to sort of convey that it's not done by the fact that it's just like the last picture is One Last Wish, I think, in 1986. That's a really great photo that Bert took. And, um, you know, it, it's to say that this is continuing. It's not ending. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think that's a really different. important thing because I think a lot of uh, documentaries, something that I've taken issue with is that they'll focus on a certain time period and at the end of that bracket they'll give the impression that, that the thing ended, that there was no more punk because those, those people uh -huh. chose to no longer be a participant, uh -huh. which always gives people who came along later the sense of like, well, this is what, I missed this whole thing? Whereas I think something like what you're talking about shows that it, it's part of a continuum. Here is this, this thing that happened, right. but 
generously, it continues to happen. So you can still right. you know, be a part of this. Right, 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 or, right. You know, or other people who came later, it wasn't like they were part of something that was invalid. They just weren't within the right. time frame that you're showing in a particular right. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and people, John Stab always talked about he was going to do the second. Everybody's like, you need to do the next version of Band of DC? I'm like, no, no, no. Somebody else does that one. Mm -hmm. Like, I, that was it, you know, because that was the time that I felt was really important for, you know, what I experienced. And I really don't, I, I'm not the right person to do the next one if there was ever going to be a next one. And I, I don't know. <laughs> there kind of is and there kind of is and there's now, you know, film documentaries because it's easier to do film than there ever was before because it's all digital. So that's great. You yeah, know? And there's a film documentary on everything. Every, right. every little bit right. of my new show. It's pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, so that was... The band of DC was really about trying to make sure to remember what that was and what it felt like. And I don't know, I can't tell if it's what it feels like, but people like it. Um, and they, it's something inspiring about it. Um, there's a couple things that are funny about it that definitely, um, uh, that there were a lot of women involved with the scene then, and they're not photographed because a lot of them weren't on, on stage. Mm -hmm. So they're, not a lot of photographs of them so when there were photographs of them i actually made them bigger in the book so right. that it balances out mm -hmm. the sort of feeling of how many women were involved with it um and then we filled in spaces so there's lots of little photos once the layout was done we're like oh like leslie put in her friend and like some other people that were just like wait a minute these people are missing and then lefties in there really small because she was really involved uh but we couldn't find photos of some of these people and one of the bands that doesn't get really good coverage is Scream because somebody who took a lot of photos just kept on flaking out on giving me the photos and then finally I was like, you know what, that's it. Like you've missed your you've missed yeah, the right. you know, missed this opportunity. I've asked you for a year and you just never gave it to me. So it's unfortunate, but that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And you published it yourself, right? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And at some point I remember Leslie saying, Why don't you just find a publisher so you don't have to do this anymore? And I was like, No, I actually really think it's important that I keep on doing it sort of to represent that you can the idea that you could actually do this on your own and it doesn't need, you don't need some higher, like, you know, somebody with more money who has the wherewithal to do it, that you can actually do it yourself. And yeah. that's the point. So even in its most recent incarnation, it's yeah. still entirely, and then you've got to handle, I imagine that the distribution is, is perhaps a bit easier now than it was. It's, at it's all different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could get, I think I talk about it in the afterward of the different distribution channels, but I mean, it changed over time. The beginning was all mail order, and I gave flyers to Max and Rock and Roll and Discord, and it cost so much to make the book mm -hmm. that if I sold them all by mail order, I would have just made my money back. So I had to give away a bunch of books to all the photographers anyway, so I was already losing money. And it wasn't until the second printing that I actually broke even. So mm -hmm. I had to take more money to print it, but right. it cost less because I, hadn't, I wasn't paying for those negatives to be made. Mm -hmm. So I was able to recoup the loss of the first one and the second printing. And so the first and second printing, most of them were only sold by mail order by me or Discord. Mm -hmm. Maybe not even Discord. I think it was mostly... I don't really understand how they were all sold. A lot of them were like hand, I like sold them to people like, you know, like, yeah. the, you know, like yeah. you to me like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I purposely had to come out before Christmas so that there would be a whole bunch of people who would buy them for Christmas. So I'd get instantly get money back in cash, which right. was what happened. Yeah. I mean, I, it came out like December, like 15th or 14th or 13th. And I was like, like hitting the ground running with mm -hmm. it, trying to sell as many as possible because 
it cost a lot of money. <laughs> I can believe it. Yeah, it's a it's it a real huge. book. Yeah, and it I was massive, a... and it was published and printed in Maryland. I mean, it's not like, again, through all these different um, uh, modes of uh, distribution. Eventually, the third printing or fourth printing, by then Discord was. Um, set up their own distribution network so that Discord Direct, so I was selling them to Discord because I could, because I could give them a discount because I had finally made my money back. I also raised the, learned the hard way that I had to raise the cover price because mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about the 60% discount you had to provide to distributors, which, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's why the cover price went up. And then, um, so Discord started distributing it and then Discord had a distributor in, Europe, Southern Records, that did a lot of Discord, they manufactured a lot of the Discord records there and brought them here because the exchange rate at, at, yeah. in like the early 90s was um, better to have things manufactured in Europe and brought here. And so it, it got more complicated, but it did open up this conduit. And so I sold like printed, one printing was like three or 4,000, maybe 3,000, where 2,000 of the 3,000 would directly onto a pallet into a boat and went to Europe. Mm. And the idea being that if I could do enough volume that I yeah. and send it to London where they would distribute it at the cost of making it, so I didn't make any money at all, like it was just at the cost, mm -hmm. but it would get to Europe really cheap. Because at that point, it was so expensive to send them directly to Europe any other way. Oh, yeah, and I was thinking how it would be really cool for them to get to Europe at the same price that they are here. Mm -hmm, you know, yeah. so they were like super cheap. Yeah. So that's like things like that. So every like printing, I tried to figure out some other way, saw an opportunity to, to distribute it a different way. Mm -hmm. So there's different people who distribute it. And then eventually when Amazon started, that... I swear there were punk kids starting working at Amazon. Like I imagine them in some office like this, like, oh, let's do the Bannon DC book. Let's get that on there first. Because uh -huh. it was like on there so at the beginning of Amazon. It was so funny. I'm like, okay, that's so funny. Whatever, this Amazon thing. And they Amazon got them then directly from you? Yeah, they would buy yeah. them directly from me yeah. and they would buy like six and then they would sell them and then they'd get six more and then eventually they set up their big warehouses that they would be sent, it was no longer being sent to Seattle. They would be sent to Seattle someplace. Mm -hmm, right. And then it was, you know, they had New Jersey somewhere else and and then they changed their whole thing where they had that big big discount thing and that, that whole thing kind of ended me selling to them because- Oh, you don't sell to Amazon any longer? No, I stopped when they required that you had to send a box to them to the warehouse and I had to pay for the shipping and then mm -hmm. they required this huge discount like 60% off which that's already the books cost more than 60% off for me or 70% off they cost more for me to make them in the United States so their whole structure of how yeah. they their price discount on books is set up for printing books in China it's not yeah, there's right. no way you can print a book of the any of the quality of books you see that are made in China at that price mm -hmm those prices are just ridiculously low. Right. It's like a really nice hardcover book for $40. That's cheap. Mm -hmm. In the old days, like in the 80s, something like that would be $110 or $120. But right. now they're 40 because they're made in China and Amazon discounts it. And I don't know who's making the money. I think Amazon is. I don't even know. The, I, think I don't the, think anybody The pennies does. add up. I mean, I think they probably make that, that very narrow margin, but with such a huge amount of oh, material, right. they move, That's true. that the those volumes. pennies are all, yeah, the volumes really, yeah. really make right. the money. But so, you can probably get the book that. through a third-party seller through Amazon, right? I mean, maybe it's even Discord or something where you, well, you I can't do go that. through. So I sell them for $25 postpaid. I just sell them for the cover price. I'm like, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm just selling them the cover price. I'm not going to deal with this because it... it 
it later it just became more and more like you know you get older it's like I don't even have time for this like I really didn't have time to do the book again but I really wanted the book to be published and then I was selling the book I'm just like I don't have time to do if I'm only selling it for the cover price and I'm signing it and that's it you know and I'm mm -hmm. sending it priority mail to them and that's their bonus is that they get it like really fast but yeah. you know I just like I can't uh I just I'm not gonna do I'm not going to reduce the price and then they don't get it and then I spent all this time trying to find the book, you know, because yeah. I didn't get it shipped because it was fourth, you know, media mail and I don't know, just the whole Would thing. you consider in a future incarnation of it passing it on to... Somebody uh, else? Yeah, a publisher or, or do you really want to hold on to that? Well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I'm kind of wondering if it, this is maybe the last printing or just this is this printing might sit around for a while. I mean... I mean you have a good number of them. I have a good number hand. of them, yeah. yeah. And I don't... I don't... I'm not... I guess I'll just cross that bridge when I get to it because there's nothing so many things have changed since 1988 it's kind of pointless to think about what it's going to be in five years because who knows like you know maybe yeah. it'll just be on you could just print it and like anybody can just get it yeah. and that's you know get it online somewhere and just print it out you know what I mean like that kind of thing like just self I don't know I have no idea you know because I don't it's funny because with the photographers, I they're all verbal agreements of like you're not getting paid. You just get some books. When I have books, I'll just give mm -hmm. you some books. No one has ever come along down the line and no. said, you know, you, no. Use well, my some work. people have considered like asking for money, and I've talked to them about it. I'm like, well, we all agree that you're not getting paid, and really, I'm not making any money. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. How much work this is, and mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. a kind of a. I mean, it's been sort of a game of figuring out how to make it work every time. Mm -hmm. And then I just have been in the, I've lived in the same place. So I've had the opportunity to be able to find places to store it. Like I lived at Discord forever. It was stored there. It was stored in my mom's basement. Now I'm paying for storage for it and it needs to get moved out because if there's any chance of me breaking even, it's not losing that money. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, not I, having it sit in storage yeah, right now. I, I understand that completely. You know what I mean? So yeah. I have to move that out um, and I don't know where to put it. So I have to figure that out. I mean, I actually, so, I mean, Discord might take more once they sell their chunk of books and then I might be able to fit it in my house, um, but I don't know. <laughs> and then you'd be just making furniture out of copies of your own right, books right. and they'll and be all over just, the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're heavy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, we're going to, well, yeah, we're just so, about out of time. I wanted to ask you, I mean, it's unfortunate that I can't, we didn't get a chance to talk about all the rest of your life beyond right. this point. Right, well, uh, yeah. Uh, but there was, there was, you were involved in the Threat by Example uh, book, yeah, uh, yeah. which um, you know, I've gone back to a few times over people because I know that that, that book was very influential on young me, and I know other people who oh, were really? drawn oh, to that cool. book too. Yeah, yeah. Because the idea is having all of these different creative people mm -hmm. who came out of a lot of different parts. I mean, there was all sort of related to punk, but some of it was fairly Not, tangential, yeah. and, right. and uh -huh. some of it was just very artistic. Uh, I thought it was a really unique work, and this is something that I talked to Sprouse about because you know, he put that thing together. But what was your involvement in that book? Well, I think that in um, 1990, the end of 91, I was booking a club from 86 to the end of 91. It closed. I think this is the time period. And I called Martin. I said, what are you doing? I think this is when Threat by Example came out, or is this another book he was working on? Well, he, he later did Sabotage in the American Workplace. Oh, that's the book I helped him with. So Threat by Example was before. But you're in Threat by Example. I mean, you have some photographs in it. Yeah, so um, I think that I can't even remember now. There's been times where I've actually gone out and just 
gone out there for two weeks and helped Martin with like a huge chunk of work and we just hang out mm -hmm. working together because we work really well together. We have a really good time working together. And he's a so. chick magnet, right? <laughs> That's right. Apparently. <laughs> I still, Martin. I have the little button. You do? All yeah. right, good. Yeah. <laughs> he's so funny. Man, he's so funny. Um, so, fun. You know, it's funny because I actually don't remember, but I know that I went out there for that, and I went out there for um, uh, in 1992 to help him for like two or three weeks. It might have even been a month where I just worked on projects with him, mm -hmm. just for fun. So that's kind of my, like I just jump in and start working on it, like a production or something that we're working, you know, he's right. working on. Mm -hmm. It's funny, you could put that on a resume, but I've never done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. Wait a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but the interesting thing about all of this, and, I, and I've said it like four times in this interview, is that um, I eventually became a, like, I booked uh, bands in a club that was a pretty small club that was capacity 90, and then I, um, so it was, it was bands, and it, but it wasn't just punk, and so it was, you know, anything original, performance art, storytelling, it was really avant-garde, jazz, everything, um, and then, uh, that closed because of sort of development of DC. It was supposed to reopen and never did. And then I got more involved with doing my own fine artwork photography. And it was started and rooted in doing, working with zines. So one of my first projects was taking these photos of DC musicians with their cars or their favorite mode of transport, which was for mm -hmm. a zine called Speed Kills from Chicago. And then from there, and I kind of use that as a tool to teach myself photography again, because I sort of stopped for a while and I was like, I'm going to do this again. And, and then I kind of went on my own and started driving across the United States. I put those photographs on tour like a band uh, for like three years. Um, and it went um, with Pat Graham. Pat Graham was a photographer who moved from uh, Milwaukee and moved to DC um, in the 90s. And so he and I collaborated and it was my photos of people from DC um, in bands with their cars and the same people live and they're playing in their bands. Mm -hmm. And so there was like this pair, one, yeah. one photo of like Kathy Wilcox and then her playing in her band and like, and so on. And we toured that like a, a band and it was sort of my idea to tour it. And I did most of the work for that. It was, it. and so basically what I'm saying is that, that, that my interest in doing more fine art photographic work and then eventually during this time I was acquiring a bunch of letterpress equipment um, and doing letterpress printing was, it, it was part of that same kind of uh, mode of uh, working with a community that made me sort of use the, apply the same things I was doing in the whole punk scene, but mm -hmm. I started doing it in an art scene. And eventually like coming here to Philadelphia to do a, a solo show at Space 1026 in I think 1999 or 2000. I was there, yeah. yeah. Oranges, so, right? So, wh what? Oranges, right? Yeah, right, yeah. right. So, I mean that, to me, it was like a natural progression, but when you when you eventually, like where I am now, and I think back to that, I'm like, of course I would be doing a show at Space 1026. That's the most awesome thing. I love that. And mm -hmm. like there was this real connection with some of my friends in DC that were involved with music, but in, also involved with art. And a lot of people, like Ian wasn't really, Ian wasn't really like, he wasn't, his focus wasn't in art, it was all music. And there's other people who are more into art. I mean, we would go to Philadelphia all the time to the openings of Space 1026. It wasn't just my show. We were yeah. there all the time. And we'd yeah. go to that vegetarian Chinese restaurant near there, which I can't remember what it's called. And there's Harmony, a new Harmony, and there's uh, well, a couple places around there. Yeah. It was so good. And we would, 
drive up. It was so funny because I was just driving up here. I'm like, this is taking longer than I remember driving up before. Mm -hmm. But that's probably because I was with a bunch of friends and it was like yeah. instant, you know? Yeah. And you were here and drive up on Friday. It was a Friday night and it would be like terrible traffic a lot of times. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just so, uh, so the progression of that and kind of unbelievable. Eventually I became a curator and hired by Arlington County, Virginia to be run an art like an art center, basically my interview was like, it would just be like the club I booked, but it's an art space. Mm -hmm. And then doing that and then um, learning about the whole art scene kind of via this channel of like this more serious job, 40 hour week job, that my work now is in the collection of like the Smithsonian Museum of American History and That's the fantastic. Getty. I mean, the Getty, J. Paul Getty Museum has some of my photographs. That's it's so great. weird. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it like they, document the whole history of me which includes doing the band in dc and all this other stuff mm -hmm. which is really pretty amazing like i can't when i it was last december like a little year over a year ago and i got the like formal letter which didn't make any sense i couldn't understand and i remember like emailing somebody who would know i'm like what the hell does this mean does this mean they're actually acquiring my work and they're like yeah that is a big fucking deal like that is a big deal yeah, so, yeah like could, really <laughs> that's so crazy so so i mean this is like I just, uh, the whole point of it is, and that's sort of what my slideshow talks about, and I don't know if it'll convey, because sometimes I get, I go on these tangents, is that it just, I'm, you know, the whole punk thing was so much a part of who, I obviously am attracted to it because of a community, but it's set, the, the tools you learn by being in a community and really working with, just working with people in a positive way is really is a really great, <laughs> it's mm. really great knowledge and really, there are great tools to have for the rest of your life to do whatever you do. Yeah, you I, know? I see and that in just, a lot of people going for. I mean, the, the co-op across the street kind of came right. out of some people, uh, you know, who were very involved in punk and took those oh, same really? lessons into the, into the world. And the people who shop there don't necessarily know that, they don't have to know that, but you know, these are the, the kind of the crucial lessons that you, you pick up involved yeah. in this thing. It's just you want to do this. But these too. small things like actually impact people. And I guess that's what, maybe that's what you're saying to me. But I remember the, because I know now that, um, what's the tea, like Sleepy Time Tea? What is that brand? Oh, Celestial Seasonings. So, yeah. It used to be, I think it was like a hippie. I think a hippie, like, like, well, considering the like name. small company started it. And it was in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And they used to sell it like loose tea, it wasn't tea bags. And then when they made tea bags, they actually said, and this is probably, there was like a note on the side of the box. Cause they remember they had those quotes and notes and now they don't as much anymore. Cause I think some major corporation owns them. So they changed it. Yeah. So they bought, they own most of it now. And the, like whoever owns it doesn't really own it. Um, <laughs> so, so they had some notation on this that the tea bags were made from, uh, from paper that was, oxygen bleach because um you know chlorine bleach paper puts dioxin in the wastewater system or whatever the water system and that was like in 19 i read that in 19 like like 89 or 88 mm -hmm. or 87 it was a long time ago nobody knew what that was i didn't know what that was i started looking it up i realized what the hell it was that chlorine chlorine reacts with natural like uh, natural substance in the water and makes the waste dioxin, which is super, super poisonous. And um, we use chlorine everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's just t a terrible thing. And so th it's like that one thing like set me off on this whole tangent, which I still, you know, um, paper, I mean, paper's gotten, you know, they, they actually talk about the recycle and all that stuff now. 
Back then they didn't. Nobody knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because if you know you put that knowledge in the hands of certain people, and you can really spread. Yeah, I think the, the world has become hyper aware of those those things now. It's a, right. it's a completely different world in, right. in, in that respect. Yeah. of people's paying attention to where kind of hyper becoming. aware, but you know what? Yeah. The, we think we're hyper aware of everything, but we really aren't because we're still not hyper aware. So when we're talking about, and I'm just going to end this with this because this is something where again, like where I sit here and when I'm 51, I say, am I using my energy in the right way? And I, should I be doing something else? I like check in with myself. Should I be doing something else? And I really mm -hmm. think I should be. I should stop doing whatever this is that I do for a job for 40 hours, which has to do with contemporary art and use it for something that's more useful for people. I don't mm. think art overall contemporary art, because a lot of it just goes to, you know, these art, you know, these art shows, art Basel Miami and these people are, is this an investment tool for people and all this kind of stuff when you're talking about some of this high contemporary art stuff. And I'm not really interested in that, but like, Right now, like I, five years ago, I got exposed to these chemicals at work, and I have something called a chemical hypersensitivity. And chemicals are used in common common things that we use that I can't be exposed to. And do you have so, to live in a bubble in the desert now or something? Well, it's kind of a joke, but <laughs> unfortunately, in some ways, yeah, I react to things really fast and scary because, you know, I don't expect to and then it happens so for example last week when i got a new chair for my office i immediately reacted to it and i was like i have to take this out of here and you guys need to take it away because it's mm -hmm. off gassing and i can't be exposed to whatever that is and it's something it's usually you know a petrochemical based thing so like when we're talking about this guy with the gmo the gmo fields of corn and everything that's mm -hmm. all that it's all based oil-based chemicals which are all terrible to be exposed to and we shouldn't be exposed to them so when we all sit here and say we're all hyper aware of all this stuff, there is so much stuff that we're still not aware of that that is still swept under the rug. Yeah, and, and I suppose some people are hyper ignorant where they may have access to the knowledge but willfully ignore it because of whatever well, their reason. And the EPA is bullshit. It's like the we we our government set up is supposed to be we're paying people to protect us and the the EPA the way it's I mean it's just obvious. That these things get, I don't know how the whole system works, but it's obvious that some things get pushed through and are able to be, you know, products can be put out on the market that are actually really, people react to. Mm -hmm. and, um, it, and the thing about the chemical hypersensitivity is, is that we all have a limit, and then once we reach the limit, just like any allergy, then we become what, you react to it, so you become allergic to it. And so we're all being exposed to things all the time that eventually we might have some reaction to it. And it sounds, I might, I might sound completely crazy, but <laughs> I, I experienced it and it's something that's, mm -hmm. that makes me more aware of it. Right. So, um, and we live longer. So a hundred years ago, so many of these people probably got exposed to so many worse chemicals than what we ex get exposed now, but they didn't live as long anyway. Right because of the way our whole life cycle is set up now. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like how it's set up. But well, we have to cut off now. Uh, thank you very much, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But we'll continue this conversation in 100 tangent. years. Because we'll, right. we'll still hopefully be alive. Be alive. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> as long as you stay yeah. away from cats, right. we should be okay. No, I'm all right. Um, but again, so the point is, is that I think that, um, you know, it's great to um, focus our attention on things and keep on improving the world. I think that's and a great that's idea. A, yeah. So I'm excited to be here and talk about it some more. I'm glad to have you here. Thank you <laughs> yes. very much for uh, talking to me. Thanks.